This episode is brought to you by A Dozen Cousins, soulfully seasoned, ready-to-eat beans. Learn more at adozencousins.com. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we are joined by the team from Rosella, a new sustainable sushi restaurant in New York City. We follow the journey of how they met and pushed themselves to study over 90 variety of fishes to deliver the high quality they're used to while being good stewards for the environment. And on the second half, Jocelyn McKenzie returns to Snacky Tunes to play songs from her new record, Push. She shares her methodologies for making music and tapping into the voices around us that help pull songs from the ether. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Listen up. The whole world in the flux of a fever. Sent to search and destroy by the Everyone's either breaking up or breaking down. Who'd have known we would both end up smoldering, lonely? Now I've only one thought when you phone Will you heal me from bottom up? Come out the other 
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Krasnitz. We are back after, at least for myself, a hiatus from our book tour and book launch. Thank you to everyone who attended and to everyone who bought a book. They're still for sale. If you go to snackytunes.com, a small little plug. We are joined by the team from Rosella, uh, a sustainable sushi spot that opened in New York. If you can believe it, it opened in October 2020. Uh, welcome, guys. Uh, why don't you go around and introduce yourselves and what you do at the shop? Uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, I'm Yoni, Yoni Lang. Uh, first off, thank you so much for, for having us on. I'm very excited to, to be here today. Um, I am one of the chef partners in the restaurant. So my kind of day-to-day is, you know, making the food, executing the food, menus, uh, and whatnot. So very glad to be here. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm Jeff Miller, um, the other chef uh, and partner. And I'm TJ Provenzano, uh, the third partner and beverage director. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Um, before we get to the restaurant, let's go back a little bit. Um, each of you, uh, we have varied youths uh, as one will and i'm curious for each of you what was your turning point where you knew your life was going to be committed to food or tj in your stance committed to wine wait do, wait, do we have to be committed already good <laughs> oh, gracious uh, i think when you open <laughs> restaurant at the least like forward facing you have to be committed at least <laughs> and, the, and the public that you're serving yes uh, uh, existential crisis commence yes <laughs> yeah pandemic notwithstanding uh, TJ, why don't we start with you? Yeah, well, I can tell you that uh, for me, it happened pretty early on. I was in, uh, in college in Boston uh, working for a little Italian restaurant with a wood-fired grill and was drinking a lot of Italian wines and learning a lot about Italian wines and just kind of immersed myself in it uh, at about the age of 22 or 23 and fell in love and just loved the idea of not being behind a desk every day and and committing to something creative that you can, you know, really have an influence on uh, people's good times. And, you know, living that kind of life seemed uh, very beneficial. And I really fell in love with the whole idea of it and just kept progressing. I started working for some local producers and eventually found my way uh, focusing on local products. Uh, So that was kind of an exciting turning point. But I would say early on, 23, 24 years old, I, I decided to kind of go all in and it took that long to get where we are today, about another 15 years later, and uh, it's all very exciting. And even the pandemic can't, uh, you know, delay my passion for it. So it's exciting. Yoni? Oh, man, I would, uh, I would probably echo around the same age that TJ said. Uh, I had a bit of a flip-flop 
in career paths, I guess you say. Um, I'd been racing a bicycle uh, full time since I was in, in high school and kind of came up through going to, to LSU still with that full time uh, bicycle racing um, and actually ended up dropping out of LSU to to pursue that even further. Um, and the, I guess the creative aspect of, of, uh, you know, restaurants and specifically sushi was what I wanted to get into from the get go, um, was just something that I was always drawn to. And, uh, I guess after, you know, getting into the restaurant industry initially and kind of deciding whether or not to, to go down the career path of trying to, you know, become a professional athlete or <laughs> proceed in the restaurant industry, uh, eventually picked the restaurant industry and, uh, definitely a huge change in, in what you do on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I would say, I guess around maybe 22, I moved, um, decided to kind of uproot my life and move away from Louisiana and, and go pursue that, that culinary lifestyle. Jeff? Boy, um, I'm not sure exactly how old I was. It was right around uh, 2010 or 2011. I was I was still in, I was finishing college. Uh, I started making sushi when I was in college at the University of Florida. Um, but I had an internship uh, at an ad agency up in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, a couple weeks into the internship, I was so restless and missing restaurants. Uh, so I, I picked up a, a little side job at a burger place. Um, not, not cause I needed the money or anything, but to, just, just because I, um, I missed being in a restaurant. And, uh, so right, right around then I, I realized maybe, maybe it's time to just accept restaurants. Hmm. Uh, Yoni, um, I'm spending the pandemic in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is not too far from Baton Rouge. Um, oh, it's fantastic. I know you had a, yeah, I know you had a, a sushi food truck uh, during the time. What were you serving? Where were you sourcing your fish? Um, what could one expect on, on the menu? On the food <laughs> uh, truck? That's uh, definitely a blast from the past. Um, yeah, so I after I kind of was still back and forth between cycling and and working for free behind a sushi bar, just trying to, you know, gain the respect of, of peers and, and learn the skill set and whatnot. Um, yeah, I guess after about a year, I, I thought it would be a good idea to, to open up a, a sushi truck in Baton Rouge in the middle of summer. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was actually a, a fellow cyclist. Uh, his name is Patrick Fellows, and he owns uh, – couple restaurants in Baton Rouge. One in particular was called Fresh. It was a a salad shop and they did all just very healthy lifestyle kind of foods. And he had this truck that he didn't really know what to do with. Uh, he offered it to me and said, if this is something you want to pursue, you know, you feel free to use the truck. And, uh, and I put a little menu together. I, it was a little menu of mostly just some small rolls and some nigiri, some sashimis. And again, I'd only been in, in the, the restaurant industry for maybe a year at this point. And so it was very green still. And, 
was kind of just figuring it out as I went. And uh, I actually, funny enough, I got to the point where I was pulling this truck up <laughs> to to bars and waiting until people filed out of the, the LSU bars at two in the morning and were serving them large rolls cut on a bias, serving them sushi burritos. And I was just selling out every night. It was hilarious. It was just a food truck with Kendrick Lamar playing, bunch of friends hanging out, helping me ring customers up and uh, slanging sushi out of windows. It, uh, it was a blast. Yoni, were you selling out because you didn't prep enough? <laughs> yeah, prob- <laughs> probably, definitely something along those lines. Uh, I mean, just the way you spin it, you know, sell one, sell 10, just as long as there's nothing, nothing left. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Jeff, you headed to to Texas to one of Darren and mine's favorite restaurant, restaurant groups, Uchi, Uchiko, where you started as the line chef and you made your way up to sushi chef uh, for the uninitiated. What is that? What is that process? Um, and what are you allowed to touch as a line chef? And then what do you finally get your hands on as a sushi chef? Boy, um, the the extent of this answer could could take a very long time. Um, well, it, the that trajectory and that that story would be different for for everyone. But the the reason that I moved to Texas to work for Uchi and Uchiko um, was because that that path was going to be so so difficult and challenging and new. I had spent five years at a restaurant in, in Gainesville, Florida called Dragonfly. Uh, and then I went and staged at uh, Uchiko um, and realized just how, how much I still had to learn after five years of being in sushi. Uh, and so when I, when I got there, it was kind of like starting over. Um, I, I had, I had worked up to being a head sushi chef at Dragonfly, but yeah, going back down to line level, um, at Uchi and then Uchiko, uh, really, it, it required um, setting pride aside, um, allowing myself to relearn a lot of um, a lot of basics, and then it just took years um, years of getting through. If you've been to those restaurants, you know how busy they are. It just took years of getting through some very very difficult, busy nights, um, and, uh, absorbing everything that I could along the way. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I met Yoni. Um, and, uh, Yoni working with Yoni got, got, a uh, a lot, a lot out of me as well. We were, we're both pretty competitive people. Um, and, and anyway, I should I should stop there because Yoni can tell his side of this story. But um, but yeah, yeah, we we got a lot out of each other. Uh, TJ, I know that you're born and raised uh, New Yorker, uh, not just New York City, but the the state of New York. Um, once you shifted your focus to wine, you ended up as the general manager of Brooklyn Oenology. But that's also where the sustainable sushi experiences started. Can you give a little history of your education there and how the sushi pop-ups came about? Absolutely. Uh, it was a really fun time. It was uh, 2013 when we did our first Mayanoki pop-up at BOE. And uh, the Brooklyn Analogy Tasting Room was a wonderful place right in the middle of Williamsburg, uh, kind of right at the, uh, I wouldn't, I would say right in the middle of the uh, kind of uh, renaissance in Williamsburg where uh, local became such a big 
big word to use and you know things like smorgasburg were really taking off and it seemed like all of our neighbors and uh all of our uh competitors were thinking about how to make things local how to take pride in what's right around the corner from you and here in new york state we have the ability to source you know everything from from vegetables to seafood right in our own backyard and grow amazing wines so taking that pride and and really trying to find ways to highlight that was what we were trying to do at boe and uh the sushi program was just an extension of that it was uh you know, we were working with a couple other people that came to us and said, hey, we have some ideas about sourcing local seafood and, and showcasing, you know, we live on an ocean here in New York. And why not, uh, you know, serve uh, an omakase with when we're focusing only on New York State products and do a pairing along with it that is entirely local. And that was extremely interesting to me. It was something that we were doing maybe once or twice a month. Um it was. It's kind of funny to look back and see that first menu that we put together back in 2013. Uh, you know, we were naming the dishes. I think we had the tavern on the green was one of the courses, and you know, it's it's embarrassing, but and but also nostalgic, and uh, really is a good kind of jumping off point to where we've ended up now. But we really wanted to show people that uh, right in their own backyards, you know, there are amazing things to, to work with. And that if you kind of limit yourself to only using those, that some creativity can really come out and, uh, you know, definitely steering away from the kind of traditional experience that you may expect with an omakase was really fun. And it was really interesting to offer people something that was that different. So for a few years, we were doing that maybe once or twice a month, kind of, it was gaining its own steam and it was really kind of building a name for itself, and it was funny because we'd be back serving wine and, and doing flights and tastings at Brooklynology, and people would show up and be like, hey, where's the sushi restaurant? Uh, you know, we're on Google, and it says there's a sushi restaurant here. So I think then that's when we started to notice that this thing had a, a life of its own. And eventually, we uh, in 2017, we, we tran- you know, transitioned to a brick-and-mortar space once Brooklynology closed, and we were able to for two solid years offer i think a, a pretty uh creative and amazing omakase experience in a, in a tiny eight seat closet of a restaurant on sixth street uh so it was it was a lot of fun and, and that's where jeff and i met and eventually uh yoni and i met as well and, and it took us to where we are today uh yoni and jeff question for both of you um i imagine that uchi and uchiko just got the best fish from around the world no questions asked. What was the gear shift or mental shift you had to do to switch over to sustainable sushi and, and refine your approach with those creative limitations? Oh man. Um, there's, there's, there's so much to that, but it started, um, the, the transition started when, um, and, and Yoni jump in if I'm, missing anything here but yoni was the head sushi chef at at uchiko and i was working under him um and he had me take over the fish ordering responsibility and one of one of our um one of our suppliers at that time most of our suppliers like you said uh, accurately were getting us fish from all over the world specifically from japan um, all the, all the classic 
Japanese fish you're accustomed to seeing at, at good sushi restaurants. Um, but we were getting, I think we were getting scallops and, and, um, big eye tuna from peerless based in Brooklyn. We were getting New Jersey scallops and New Jersey tuna. Um, and I, I think that's how it started. I don't even know how we got the account started with them, but, um, the quality of the, the, uh, seafood they were sending was, was excellent. Uh, and it was so good that it challenged our, our preconceived notions that, um, seafood was, <clears throat> seafood from, from Japan was inherently better. Um, so we, we just started exploring everything that this one company had to offer from the East coast. We were getting a lot of, uh, we, we just started trying any, any fish that they had available. Um, and most of it was East coast. Occasionally we'd be getting some, some West coast seafood as well. Um, and yeah, when, once you start down that path and you have a good supplier, uh, you realize pretty quickly that, um, where the fish comes from doesn't, doesn't matter as much as, um, whether it's in season, how it's caught, how it's handled, how fresh it is. Um, Even just having that, that good supplier, you know, someone who, who really cares on their side of the industry is, is so rare. And it's, it's as rare as, you know, finding a, a good worker in any industry. Um, and so, you know, building those relationships throughout, throughout the years has been very important. I know Jeff has spent a, a lot of time building a lot of the relationships so you can, you know, get good fish. And, and like you said, once we went down this, this path of realizing that, you know, the things we were seeing, so to speak in our backyard, uh, was almost superior in terms where we wasn't spending as much time in the air on an airplane, uh, you know, and especially more important when you are, getting fish off of boats that are really caring for how they're bringing it in and, you know, the fish isn't you know, being kept on the line for too long. So it's, you know, all these, these factors are so important before you even get the fish that a lot of times you have no control over. So having that, that person who really cares about, you know, the industry from the, the fish purveyor uh, point of view is super important for us. Oh man. Yeah. To, to that point, I remember shortly after we started, um, ordering a lot of seafood from, from Peerless, um, I switched, uh, where we were getting tuna from one, one, one week I switched our, our tuna supplier because the tuna that Peerless had, had shipped was, um, not, not as good as we wanted. And we were going into service and I checked my phone and I had five missed calls from, from our rep from Peerless and, I thought it was some sort of emergency. So I called him back and he was like, Hey man, I just want to know why you didn't order tuna from us this week. And I explained it to him and he said, Oh dude, just please just let me know. Uh, he was like, he, he was, he, it sounded like he was desperate, uh, but he just cared so much. He wanted to make, make sure that we were getting, um, we were getting exactly what we wanted. And you don't, you, you don't get that from every company. Uh, and that makes, uh, makes, makes a hell of a difference when, when you're working with people who care, um, and one to, to elaborate on, on this one, one more point that, um, 
to, to make from something that Yoni and I discovered the first time we went to Japan is, uh, yes, Japanese fish are, are good for sushi. Um, but we, I don't think we could have realized this until we were in Japan together. The first time was in 2016. And then all three of us went together in 2019. Um, but the fish that the Japanese ship to us or ship outside of Japan, all that fish has been picked over quite a bit. So if, if you're in Texas, you're not getting, you're not getting the, the best of the best from Japan. We're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play a song from our archives, and then we'll be back with the team from Rosella here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. get to the restaurant itself, I think a good complement to your own education is guest education. And you have, you know, sustainable sushi restaurant within the name and you're pushing it not just as an angle, but as something you obviously all deeply believe in. What goes into the guest education side who have either maybe not been curious about another way of having sushi or feel that sushi is only done a, a particular way? TJ, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, I think it's a great question. We, 
I can tell you that when, when we were at Mayanoki and we were having those kind of one-on-one uh, indoor experiences, it was a lot easier. We were able to really kind of interact with guests in a way that could kind of, they could get out of it what they came to get out of it. So some, if somebody came and they had all the questions in the world and, and they really wanted to, you know, understand the restaurant and understand our philosophy behind the restaurant, we could give that to them in their, you know, two-hour dinner experience. It has been a lot more difficult, uh, I would say, since opening Rosella to do that in, uh, you know, in the current state of restaurants in New York City. We are unable to have guests inside, as you know, and it's a lot difficult, more difficult, I think, to, to relay this information through the internet or through uh, you know, an app, you know, a screen on somebody's phone um, or in the freezing cold. So um, I think our tasting menu experience is really the best way for us to to relay that to guests and to get that information in front of them and also um, to explain the story behind everything, which I think is, is so important, especially with, you know, not only with the sushi, but with our wines. You know, every wine has a story. every Everything has a background to it. And it's much more enjoyable when you understand all the intricacies and, you know, all of the kind of thought and curation that's gone into selecting those products or, um, you know, aging the fish in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's been one way that we've had to pivot, um, you know, since this all started. And um, I think that, you know, it's something that we look forward to uh, having the traditional experience back in our in our hands so that we can relay that information a little bit better. Um, and we can, you know, talk about the things that get us so excited of, about doing what we do. Um, it's certainly been a challenge to do that recently. Um, but I think we're all kind of internally super excited about getting back to that and, and finding better ways to do that in its current, you know, in the current state of things as well. Yoni, I know you have a background in, um, a strong background in fermentation and preservation, which is so key to sustainability and seasonality. How does that play into the menu creation and, and what's going on um, on the plate? And how are you also kind of getting customers to not maybe fall in love with something that might disappear in a couple weeks? Man, that is the... The puzzle that you know we're constantly trying to, to figure out so to speak uh, that's a amazing question i mean that that is so important with what we do on a, a day-to-day basis whereas you know <clears throat> our fish which is all ordered seasonally and utilized at the best possible time that we perceive it to be uh <clears throat> you know the same goes for fruits and vegetables and you know, moving up to New York has has definitely thrown a uh, a, a nice curveball, you know, in this direction to figure out new seasons, uh, figuring out even growing things myself. Um, we've been super fortunate to be able to have a little greenhouse over in Brooklyn on top of Rooftop Reds that we were able to grow some herbs and. Uh, vegetables and fruit and utilize a lot of those things. And, you know, a lot of that just goes back to, I think for Jeff and I, the most important thing was creating a library of sorts for us to go back to, you know, working in a lot of restaurants, you tend to uh, ignore seasonality and you get these product lists from all over the world, you know, South America and then, 
from Northern America, you're getting a lot of stuff from the West Coast that isn't in season, and that can really stifle that creative process, in my opinion, because you know, looking at a, a list of every ingredient imaginable versus this is what we have to work with, you know, restricting yourself a little more and saying, you know, let's do everything possible that we can do with this one ingredient. Take mushrooms, for example. Can we dry them, roast them and dry them, uh, pickle them and dry them, pickle them and keep them pickled, ferment them, pickle them with another vegetable? I mean, the, the possibilities are really endless. Uh, turn it into a powder, turn it into a, you know, a chili powder, whatever you wanted to do. You can get so many uh, possibilities out of one component. So I think from the get-go, our, our plan was always to kind of create this archive of, of ingredients that were preserved that we can go back to and, and say, hey, let's, you know, it's been very cold lately, uh, kind of missing the summer. Let's let's put some pickled strawberries on this dish from the summer, you know. Um, and then you kind of, the creative process becomes a little more intuitive and it, it just becomes a lot more fun than, you know, really just creating, having to create something from every possible, you know, option. Um, and it's, it's been amazing. You know, I, I learned a lot from uh, a chef in Dallas, Texas, Joel Orsini. I was able to work at a small little restaurant with him. We were the two employees in this kitchen and we had a huge garden on the roof that we took care of we had a uh, we had a beehive up there that we took care of um of of caring immensely about the importance of you know buying things locally and and growing and not just buying things locally but even you know growing things yourself so you can give that to your neighbors to use for things and uh, the, the zero waste format is not restricted to simply what you can do with it but what you know what you can give to other people and and that's where I think we're gonna see the most growth I think uh, I know that some of our listeners are like hey yeah that's great <laughs> sounds amazing must be nice New York City how wonderful <laughs> um, and like really roses guys like that's that's awesome but there has to be some uh difficulties i don't want to use the word downside but difficulties to this approach and and jeff maybe from a a culinary standpoint you know what are some of the just real honesties about some hardships that you have to face and endure along the way by by taking this approach uh the most of those those difficulties i think we experienced and and got through early on um and they reflected, um, I think, an underdeveloped uh, approach to what we were doing. The, those, those, specific whole, the, those specific difficulties being um, trying to create menus that, that we were comfortable with out of ingredients that we were uncomfortable and unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at first, at first we were trying to make menus, um, like, okay, well, we, we normally have, we normally have tuna on the menu and we normally do this with it, but there's, there's no good tuna around. There's no good sustainable local tuna. 
So what can we use in its place uh, for the same for the same sort of dish? Um, and those dishes would uh, end up being inferior to what to what we would make with the fish that we were used to. Uh, and so when, when, when things started to really improve, it was when we adopted a mindset that was embracing what we had for what it, for what it was, for what it is, rather than trying to find substitutes. Um, and, and there, there was a, a part of that that inevitably required a lot of time and work, um, familiarizing when, when TJ and I were running uh, Mayanoki on, on 6th Street, um, I, I calculated this before we opened Rosella, I calculated this because I kept track of every menu that we made. Uh, we used 91 unique species of fish and shellfish at Mayanoki. Um, and so the, the process of familiarizing ourselves with, with each one of those was work. Um, but now on the other side of it, things are becoming a little more automatic in, in that regard. It's incredible. TJ, I know that you've run everything through a local New York lens for your beverage pairing. What can I say to my snobby natural wine only from France, <laughs> you know, 12 bottles a season, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. drinking sure. friends that you, you know, you're missing out uh, in New York and like, you definitely want to get your hands on this because it's wonderful on its own, but is delicious with sushi. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that comes up often as a uh, Yoni and, and Jeff have to put up with me talking about all the time, but you know, yeah, I'm, we, I'm waiting we, for the swearing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love those wines. Podcast. <laughs> those wines, you know, we love those wines. I, you know, I love old world wines. Uh, they, are absolutely, you know, some of the greatest wines in the world, and you won't find me objecting with that ever. We're trying something new here. We're trying something different. And I really enjoy embracing new concepts when I go to visit other restaurants, and, and, I, and I love when people do the same when they come to visit ours. Um, a lot of the wines that are on our list are definitely off the beaten path. You know, the whole – it's a very conceptual list um, – with a hard line taken, you know, on using only domestic and, you know, really trying to um, showcase kind of even the underserved regions within the United States. So not just focusing on California and Oregon, which, you know, you may expect from a, from an all-American wine menu, but really, you know, showcasing some of the other underappreciated regions of, of the United States. And um, it's kind of, it's our way of, of showing that, you know, of continuing the local concept, right? We're trying to cut down our carbon footprint and trying to highlight, you know, what's being done in our own backyards, quote unquote. But it's also an opportunity for us to, um, you know, to really give the backstory and to give uh, the entire experience behind each bottle. You know, some of these, uh, pr- you know, productions that we have on our list are, you know, 100 cases produced in total. It's not that, you know, you're only able to get your hands on one case. It's that there's only 100 cases made of the thing. So, you know, having those really small batch wines that are, you know, um, kind of eye-opening and a, really an expression of a new kind of terroir that you may be unfamiliar with is, you know, really at the heart of our concept at Rosella is that, you know, we're, we're definitely trying something different. We're definitely trying to open people's eyes to, to something that may be uncomfortable at first. Uh, some of our wines definitely 
are uh, they're aggressive. You know, they're they're definitely wines that are trying to, you know, uh, put themselves on the map. And and the entire menu that we've put together for our wine list is is all about the food. is is really enti- entirely based on on trying to pair it well uh, with seafood. At Mayanoki, obviously, we were hyper focused on local. It was entirely New York State, which was very fun to do. Um, I can't think of another restaurant that would that would do an all New York State wine list or has uh, you know since or, or or in the past. But uh, having that focus was was a lot of fun, and it was and it was really um, a great way for us to show you know that if, if the seafood is coming locally, you know these vegetables are grown locally. These uh, you know all of the accoutrement that we're using from you know soy sauce to wasabi is is from the United States. Uh, you know, it's a great way to show that if it grows together, it goes together, which is something I've said way too much in the past uh, five years or so. But it really is true. And it's at the heart of exactly what we do and, um, you know, trying to open up new space. And so to the to the wine drinkers that are used to their premier crews and, and that's what they'd like, you know, there's no harm in that. And, and, and obviously those are amazing wines. But when you come to Rosella, you know, we're trying something new and we're trying to show you that, hey, we have a piquette from Maryland on our list that I think, you know, with some of these aggressive flavors that these guys are working with is, is just amazing. And it's, and it's really fun. And it's something that I don't think you'll see everywhere. Um, you know, now opening it up to the rest of America has been wonderful. You know, we at Mayanoki was all New York state. Now we're in the entirety of the United States. Uh, so we have even more to play with. And, um, right now, as you can imagine, since we just opened, we, you know, our list is hyper conceptual. It's, it's our, you know, our coming out list. It's, it's what we wanted to kind of drop as our, as our opener. Like this is what, this is, this is Rosella. This is our, uh, our passion and this is where we are. And, and, you know, as we'll, we'll evolve the list a little bit as, as time goes on and, and we get our, you know, we settle in and we, we serve these wines and sell out of them. It really can't be the same thing twice because, again, some of these wines are 100, 200 cases produced. So it will constantly be changing and it will always be different. So I would say, you know, to the, to the upper echelon of wine drinkers, to give it a try and to keep trying it, you know, again and again because it will always change. It will always adapt. And that's at the heart of sustainability is that you have to be flexible and, and keep moving forward. Uh it's not just uh, a beautiful wine list and a beautiful menu, but the space itself is stunning. Uh, we know that our good friends, former guests of Snacky Tunes, Anna Polanski from Polanski and Friends, had involvement in it. But for those who have not gotten a chance to lay their eyes on it, can you describe the room a little bit and how it embodies what your approach is to the food and the drink? I think that you know Anna Polanski was absolutely amazing to work with. She did an amazing job, you know, getting across a very modern vibe that, you know, has a, kind of an homage to to a Japanese tasting menu room without going overboard and without trying to be something that we're not. And uh, I think that um, her her choices for for colors and, and the and the and the deep woods that she chose are are amazing and. I think that she really got the vibe of the three of us and, you know, how we uh, wanted to uh, display our restaurant. I think she did an amazing job and she was phenomenal to work with. Um, And uh, I think that um, we really can't wait for people to come inside and see it one day. The the design itself is, um, it reflects our, our love of 
eating at bars. It's entirely bar seating. Uh, there's a, a six-seat sushi bar in the back and uh, about 12-seat wine bar in the front. So if in under normal circumstances, no matter where you're sitting, you're facing the center of the restaurant and you're seeing the people at the opposite bar eating and drinking. Um, the part, part of that is, is that that's how we love to eat. But we, we also designed it that way to um, create as much energy in the small space as possible and on a um, enhance that in ways that we would not have been able to think of ourselves, which I guess is the reason you hire a designer. Yes. Uh, last question, quick fire to all three of you. Yoni, we'll start with you. Um, what is the greatest takeaway you've gotten from refining your approach through sustainability? What is kind of the, the best lesson or biggest change in the way in which you see the world while adopting these new type of limitations for the better? Uh, I, I think the most important thing is to really not see them as limitations, uh, but more as opportunities to, to really enhance your business uh, and, and to really, like you said, you know, refine, refine the craft. It's, uh, it's definitely not an easy time. You know, being in this neighborhood is, is amazing and in the best place we could have picked, you know, specifically because, you know, so many people in this neighborhood are keen to try new things and support local. And, you know, we really want to cement ourselves in this neighborhood and, and be that neighborhood spot that we can continue to, you know, provide people with, with new creative and exciting food. And, you know, we, we do it for the guests and, you know, we definitely love what we do and, um, working with these these guys and this team that we have, you know, we have a very small team, five person crew. Uh, you have to look at everything as a, as a potential opportunity as opposed to a limitation. And uh, I, you know, I couldn't be prouder of the, the team that we have and what everyone does. And when everyone shows up to work, you know, everyone shows up to work and it's, uh, you know, it's all for this neighborhood and, and, you know, for ourselves and doing something that we're proud of and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a super exciting opportunity. It, it makes me so happy to to be able to be here and, and to meet new people and to be a part of this neighborhood. TJ? I would say that what I've taken away from it that's um, been the most beneficial is, is just that commitment. You have to make that commitment to, to doing it a different way. And, uh, once you make that commitment and it's, you know, can I use this because it'll make it taste better? No, you can't because you've made the choice to live this way. It's not always the easy choice, but it always feels better. And, uh, you know, echoing what Yoni said, it's, these are opportunities for you to get creative and, and, and really expand what you thought that you were capable of in order to get something accomplished. And, and that's a very rewarding part of thinking through a sustainable lens is, um, you know, you, you get to decide how, how well this comes out by your own ingenuity. And when you, when you do that and you make that commitment to, to be, to think about it that way, it really is rewarding and, and worth it, worth it every time. And Jeff, 
Uh, I, I think the the decision that we've all made to embrace sustainable seafood and and wines and and practices in general prepared us really well for for what we're in the midst of right now um you have you have to be adaptable if you're working with products that are ever changing and not what not what you're accustomed to um you have to in the same way you embrace sustainability you you have to embrace being adaptable and we've um man since since march we've uh, s- sustainability at this point is a given, um, but we've had to become adaptable in ways that we hadn't foreseen. And I think we've been able to do a better job um, be- because because it's uh, it's become ingrained in us now, being adaptable. Well, I want to thank the three of you for taking time on your day off to speak with us. Um, where can people find you? How can they follow you? Um, get to go, make reservations, where can they get you? TJ, you want to take that? We are, uh, we're on Avenue A between St. Mark's and 9th Street uh, in the East Village of New York City. Uh, our website is uh, rosellanyc.com. Uh, you can find us on uh, all the normal social media channels, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Do we have a Facebook? Uh, I, I, think, I think so. Maybe, maybe not. I, I certainly don't have a Facebook page, so I don't know. But uh, we're definitely at Rosella Sushi on Instagram. That's that's a fact. Uh, we're uh, open for dinner right now and, and takeout and delivery as we you know pivot in this pandemic. And uh, we're, we're also open for opening lunch. for lunch. Soon. Yeah, indeed, lunch this coming weekend, which we're excited about. Uh, we'll start uh, you know eleven thirty to three for for noodles and laksa and some of these other amazing kind of warming dishes in, in the wintertime. Um, you know, the three of us will, will be on Avenue A every day. So we'd love to see you over there. We're open Wednesday through Sunday right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely stop by the website or, or check out our Instagram because, um, you know, we'd, we'd love to keep showing you what we're working on. Great. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to take another quick musical break with a song from our archives. And then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on HRN.
He bosses badge and pins it to his waistcoat. Homeward bound, he trades it for a bank no try. Try to intellectualize Cartesian flame, now pick a place to conquer. Mark the space with oil and with water. Is that all that you have to show for it? Brought to you by A Dozen Cousins, soulfully seasoned, ready-to-eat beans. A Dozen Cousins aims to bring families delicious and easy-to-prepare food inspired by traditional Creole, Caribbean, and Latin American recipes. From their Cuban black beans, made with onion, garlic, and bell peppers, to their Mexican cowboy beans made with green chilies and jalapenos, all the beans from A Dozen Cousins use easy-to-recognize ingredients like beans, vegetables, and nutrient-dense avocado oil, while avoiding GMOs and artificial flavors. Learn more at a dozencousins.com. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Uh, we have Jocelyn McKenzie back. After an eight-year hiatus, uh, you were on previously with Pearl and the Beard. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Hi, Greg. How are you? It's been a while. Yes. Uh, I think it's like early 2013 when we last spoke. I can't, I mean, I was actually searching in my emails and I think you're 100% right. So your memory is fantastic. Oh, I, I cheated. I went back and listened to <laughs> our episode. Um, and I have two, two notes from there. One is you gave full eye contact during all of your performances. <laughs> was that a good note or like a avoid this woman kind of a note? 
I think it's just a note. Um, and then the other thing I had is I, I remember your episode, particularly because the three of you, um, you and your two bandmates were just so charming throughout the whole thing. <laughs> and I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> we are, it's Charm City, USA over here. So for those who want to take a quick pause and go back to episode 146 uh, in our archives to hear kind of the prologue to this, uh, please do. But in the interest of putting a button on it, uh, how did the band wrap up? Well, thank you for asking about that. You know, Pearl and the Beard, we had so much fun together. You're right. And, it, you know, we we enjoyed charming the pants off of each other. Um, you know, it just turned that we had been at it for a really long time. And, you know, when you get into your 30s and you've been, you know, a band for almost a decade, suddenly, you know, you can find yourself wanting different things. So we all just were in different places with what we wanted out of our lives. And the best decision for everyone was just to part ways. And so now, you know, Jeremy, our guitar player, he has a a lovely wife and family with a beautiful child. And Emily, our cello player, she, you know, is still making tons of music. Jeremy is too, actually. But um, Emily had done a lot of cello playing on Broadway. uh, And, you know, she was doing her thing and uh, as well as, of course, you know, writing and improvising. And, you know, I've been working on my album really ever since then. So we all stay in touch. We're all good friends. We just, you know, that just wasn't what we were doing as a group anymore. You know, it's it's super interesting. We've done this show long enough now to have, you know, bands and performers come back in different iterations. What was the, you touched on, but like, what was the feeling when you knew that it was, it was done to to call it? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Well, it was heartbreaking because, you know, we had been working on our last album Beast for a while and, you know, we just knew that the parameters of it, it wasn't going to allow us to tour. So I was really sad that we were going to kind of release an album and not be able to tour on it, but that just ended up being the timing of what worked best for everyone. Um, so yeah, of course it was it was heartbreaking and and very sad for me. I can't speak to the other two, um, but you know the the fact that we went out with such a huge blowout show. You know we oversold Bowery Ballroom by like 150 tickets. People flew in from literally all over the world to see our last show, and that alone, that experience was so moving to me that I had to walk away just so grateful and you know, counting my blessings for all of the amazing people that we've met and the places that we've been able to go over the years. And, you know, so it was bittersweet, but man, what a, and a tremendous farewell we were given. Do you remember how that night ended? Like what time and where you were and who you were with? <laughs> I do. I remember uh, we were starting to get nudges from our tour manager, Stephen, because uh, the venue was going to have to ch- start charging us for overtime for all of their uh, employees who were going to have to keep working super late. So he was like, okay, you guys, you have to wrap it up. It's time to go. So it was nearing on um, 2.33 in the morning by the time I got back to Brooklyn and um, – Steven drove me home and dropped off my stuff and the last of the merch. And, um, and I just was like alone in, in my room in my apartment and my roommates at the time, I had just met them and kind of just recently moved in with them right before that show. So they didn't know anything about me. So it was kind of amazing because I was able to go home with zero fanfare and just, I passed out and I, I slept so soundly that night, but it was an incredibly late night. People were having to like, you know, be forced out of the venue because everyone just wanted to stay and hang and sing along. And it was, it was quite a party. 
And then actually the next day we realized we weren't going to get to say hi to everyone at the show. So the next day we just had a meetup spot uh, in Brooklyn in Williamsburg. And we were like, okay, everyone just like come to this bar all day long. We're going to be there uh, to say goodbye, you know, especially people who came from out of town. So it was like a, a family reunion. It was fantastic. One of the things that was really of note in the episode was how you all took turns crafting songs, writing lyrics. How did you begin to unwind that process mentally and then find your own voice, your own songwriting, uh, your own style Mm -hmm. as the time separated you from the band into your own solo project? Oh, Greg, that's a really good question. Um, I've been writing as a solo artist really my whole life. So uh, as a writer, I kind of was just continuing to do what I had always done. Um, You know, writing with Pearl was its own experience because, you know, I would have my songs that I would write on my own and then we would come together and have our own writing process with the three of us. Um, So I didn't really lose anything there in my writing process. But um, in terms of actually bringing the songs to life and performing them and, and recording them, I am not really an instrumentalist. I don't consider myself one. And um, so working on Push, it was really an incredible thing to call in different string arrangers to record string quartet arrangements of every song. So there are actually five composers who made Push and with me. And Emily is actually one of them. And Emily plays cello in the string quartet on the album. Um, so she was hugely integral to the process of making this. And um yeah, so it was just amazing to get to, you know, have these songs kind of in the bank and then hand them over to the composers and say, do whatever you want with them and then give them back to me. And that was an amazing collaboration because I got to just, again, like let go of the reins and then whatever they got back to me, that's what it was. You know, I made a few changes here and there, but for the most part, we kept it pretty much exactly what they wanted to hear. And it allowed this collaborative voice to shine uh, in a way that that really supported me as a writer, um, but gave the songs completely new life. Did you find that any of the songs changed meaning when they got handed back to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Particularly, um, the brave ones, which I'll play a ukulele version of shortly. Um, that song, when I handed the demo off to Sam McCormley, who was my kind of right-hand man on the project, he was my co-producer and wrote four of the string arrangements. Um, and he did all the beats on the album uh, he that demo was was really like chirpy and you know kind of upbeat and and you know this melodic little number and Sam turned it into this like dark swampy minor key beast of a song and it just blew me away like it totally gave it a new personality to me which was such a powerful moment but yeah we had a lot of moments like that on the record which was great. Can we hear a song? We can hear a song. I was just talking about the brave ones. I wasn't going to start with it, but I can. Yeah, that makes. Let's do that. Let's let's do that. I'm going to just adjust my mic, and I'm going to do my little trick and put a little reverb on this so it sounds extra nice. You hear Perfect. that? Very nice. Oh Hi. yeah. <laughs> Here we have Jocelyn McKenzie live on Snacky Tunes. <clears throat> Between the sun and the land, how the oxen bray in, 
You know the pretty ones who yearn to be a man. I said, well, it is not half bad. You know, despite zero defenses from the cold, we'll be the brave ones and thrive out of your shadow for in your head a pilgrim's palmistry the arc of head and heart and cross feet aside I've never been somebody's eyes give you little kisses until the fishes come and learn to rule the land honey well it is not that bad you know Despite our greatest efforts, we get old. We'll make depraved love. I have a geisha in my love. We'll be the brave ones. 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 We'll be the One of the other through lines from Pearl and the Beard and now your new project is one Ani DeFranco, who I have to admit is one of my all-time favorites from when I was in high school to 25 years later. Uh, I believe Pearl opened up for her and then she joined you on your EP. How did the relationship form? Well, we were introduced by Ani by our old booking agent, Susie Jang, from then she was working with Fleming Artists, who also booked Ani. So Susie suggested us as an opener for Ani, and uh, we ended up opening for her, I think it was 26 times over the course of several years. And 
we just really clicked. I mean, you know, her, her fans were incredible and her team was incredible, but she's an incredible human being. I mean, the first time I met her, when, when I looked in her eyes, I was like, she can see my soul. Like I just was convinced that she could (laughs) see through my body and into my spirit. And, and I think when you have an experience like that, you know, you kind of just, I don't know, for me, I, I, I guess I just get really humbled to it. And, open up my heart a little bit more. So it was easy to take risks around her. You know, it was easy to try new songs on the road with her and, and, and her fans were so amazing and, and she was so supportive that it, it just became a a friendship very quickly. And, you know, uh, when I knew that it was going to be our last round of touring with her, one of the last nights, I just kind of, I was like, okay, well, this is the last chance I'm probably going to ever get to ask her this. But I just kind of went up to her and I was like, hey, would you ever want to write a song together? And she was like, yeah, sure. Send me something that you're working on. And I couldn't believe it. She was just like, so game, you know, I was like, okay. Uh, So I sent her some, some demos and she ended up contributing a bridge to my song Centenarian. And that just felt like, oh my God, like I had the biggest boost of confidence in the world where one of the like a legacy artist was interested in working with me it was just so humbling and just got me really excited to just keep making more stuff and so as push developed I just kind of kept her in the loop and then eventually uh, she agreed to put it out on Righteous Babe and I'm so grateful Uh, you lead your own songwriting courses uh, intuitive songwriting I'm curious when you work with such an icon like her what does she bring to the process? Is she guiding you? Is she just giving you the bridge? You know, how does she allow you to level up or come down to you, but you don't feel uh, overshadowed by who she is and her legacy? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, you know, in, in our case, you know, we really only collaborated on that one song. So I can't say that it's, you know, a, an ongoing thing for sure. But, you know, in that case, she just kind of sent me this brilliant additional part to a song that only really had a verse and a chorus and she sent in this bridge and I was like that's perfect it's fine um but especially with with new songwriters and and using our intuition to touch on songwriting as a craft I think it's really important not to think about career or legacy or levels or anything like that because music is our universal birthright you know we all have songs in us. We all have music in us. We can all sing. Talent is not a part of it for me. Talent is something that we can hone. It's something we can work on. But music and singing and songwriting are their own really very important things to me as a human being. So I know that she supports that, you know, so that alone was enough to know that she was my peer in that way uh, that, you know, music is is something that we use for a spiritual connection with other people. And, I, and when I say spiritual, I don't necessarily mean religious by any means. I just mean that it's not material. You know, it's like when you give someone the gift of a song, that's something that stays with them forever. So I can't say that, a, you know, any kind of I, I wasn't intimidated. I just was like so excited to, to meet a kindred spirit in that realm. Uh, for the listeners who don't know about Righteous Babe, uh, I highly encourage you to look up the history, the artist model, um, why it was so incredible when it was founded, when it was, and what it, the freedom that it allowed Ani and all the artists afterwards. What does it mean to you to join a label with such pedigree uh, and to find to have that as your home? Oh my gosh, Greg! Like you were saying earlier, you know, 
I wanted to be on Righteous Babe since I was a teenager. Right? I mean, I know right? it's really true. It's really true. And I have to say, and I, if Ani hears this, I'm sorry. I was a little bit more in the Tori Amos camp when I was a teenager mm-hmm. in terms of uh, fandom, I would say. I was familiar with Ani's music and I really loved it. But I, I loved her legacy of being an independent entrepreneur and complete indestructible wayfinder even more than I loved her music. You know, I liked her songs and I loved her guitar playing. I truly admired her independent spirit and all of those things put together created this amazing wave of, of just, she just paved the way for so many independent artists and, and we're not all even aware of the work that she did. Um, And it wasn't even out of like, you know, now that I've gotten to know her a little bit, I can't even say that I, and this is my speculation here, but I can't say that she was like, and now I'm going to change the world. You know, like, I think she was just doing her thing and it just kind of happened that way. <laughs> I mean, like she probably maybe at some point also said, yeah, I'm going to go because she wanted things to be different. You know, things were things in the record label industry and even still today, you know, are really questionable. And so to work with Righteous Bay was a dream because I was like, they have the ethics that I want to embody as an artist where it's like music is for everyone. This is not a cool kids show. This is not a popularity contest. This is about getting good music into the hands of listeners who really care about what they're listening to. And all of Ani's fans are like that. And I hope to get to connect with more of them because these are such passionate listeners and it's just an incredible thing to be a part of this group of musicians. And particularly now there's so many amazing artists on righteous babe right now. Um, Gracie and Rachel resistance revival chorus, like all these amazing, powerful artists. It's, it's just so humbling to be a part of that roster. I, uh, I have a daughter that just turned one and I cannot wait to start playing her records for her along with accompanying lyric sheets uh, to just to give her a path of like your own voice and your own unique identity. So I, it is so exciting for you to be there and I found it at home. Uh, can we hear another song? Oh, we can. Sure thing. Um, well, I'm going to switch now to my Omnichord. And uh, actually, can you hear my heater? It just started going on. It's just like a nice uh, accompaniment. Okay, great. You know, so we're, <laughs> we have a little heater percussion then. It's a very real COVID time recording. So <laughs> Exactly. All right, here we go. This song is called Better. This is my Omnichord. Can you hear it? Oh, yes. Listen up. The whole world's in the flux of a fever. Sent to search and destroy by the ether. Everyone's either breaking up or breaking down. Who'd have known we would both end up smoldering, leave lonely? Now I've only one thought when you phone me. Will you heal me from bottom up or top down? Cause you make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better. You make it better, 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 better than it was. Mm. Simmer down, no one said a thing about forever. But I need you right now more than ever. 
praise and thanks to the space-time continuum that it's always now cause you make it better 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 you make it better 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 you make it better 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 than it was we have all lost it battle before and we can't stand to lose anymore but if we don't let go and get vulnerable then fear will have won the whole war that's no victory that i can afford you and i have been mutual blessings for ages on with staff with which notes on what pages the melody to a song gonna get written down anyhow we will come out the other side smiling and i'm grateful you're here and you're trying oh let's go for it bottoms up and top down cause you make it better 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 you make it better 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 you make it better and 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 better So many people might not know this about you, but you are a medium. Yes, I am. Uh, and I had to look this up because I knew the word clairvoyance, but I did not know the word clairaudience. Oh. So can you explain to people what that is and how you use it in your songwriting practice? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Yeah, so psychic and medium are kind of two different things. Psychic is really talks about the extension of our physical senses. So in the same way that, you know, we see, hear, touch, taste, smell, we have extensions of these senses in kind of an extra sensory way. So like clairvoyance is equivalent to like, I saw a vision, right? And you hear that, you know, people talk about that. But when you would hear someone say, oh, I heard a little voice or, you know, I a song came into my brain out of out of nowhere, that's called clairaudience. Um, you know, spiritual touching is like clairsentience, you know, just knowing something is claircognizance. So um, the psychic senses have really informed my writing for a very long time because when we get quiet enough to listen, for me, in my experience, there there's music everywhere. So I'm really just kind of listening to what is already there and then trying my best to go through a physical process of, of expressing it out loud. Um, the Brave Ones that I played earlier was an experience like that where I just, I just heard that whole song, really. Like, I didn't really do much. I was just in the shower and all of a sudden this, this words and melody just came together actually better to the chorus to better. Um, I'm just kind of hearing it and then singing it out loud. So um, this is a, this is something that we can all practice if, if you're interested in it. Um, I believe that everyone has access to these senses and it's not, you know, it's not a magical power. It's, it's nothing um, extraterrestrial. It's, it's a very human thing. 
that I experience in a very real way. And um, I love listening to the songs that are outside of me because then I get to become the translator and hopefully collaborate with, you know, whoever might be sending them from wherever they are and, you know, do a little co-collaboration with other realms. It's kind of great. For those who might not have known they've experienced it or maybe had an inkling at it, because so many artists and creatives talk about they don't actually even know where they got things from, that Mm -hmm. their hand was just moving or they opened their mouth and the, the lyrics were there. To the best of your ability, when it's happening, how can you describe it? Or what does it feel like so people can begin to look for it? Oh, what a great question. Oh, I would say the experience is just a lot like when you meet someone for the first time and you feel like you've known them forever. And you and you just kind of fall into conversation just very naturally and you don't even question it. And you find yourself talking as if you've, you're picking up from where you left off with an old friend. And you actually have to like check in with someone and be like, wait, we just met, right? <laughs> you know, um, that's what it feels like when a song comes in to my, my ear or into my brain in a clairaudient way, you know, and then I get to just kind of make friends with it and go, oh, you're visiting me right now, you know, on Tuesday at three in the afternoon while I'm at the grocery store. Okay, great. Um, and then, you know, try and get to know it a little bit and, and catch up, you know, it's, it's like, then you have to catch up like, okay, we're, well, what have you been doing? Where, what do you, how do you want to sound? Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that, that everyone has access to. And I think another example is like, you know, when you're thinking of a friend and then they call you or, you know, you just have a little hunch in the back of your head, you know, I should take my umbrella today, even though there's not a cloud in the sky. And then later that day it rains, you know, it's like those instinctual knowing that, you know, I think it's so easy to silence and, you know, call ourselves like, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, that's not real. That's just my, that's just me. But like, no, it's real. And why not follow it? You know, see where it can lead you. My imagination isn't that exciting. So when stuff like that comes in, I get very excited that I have an opportunity to get new information. Incredible. Well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Push is out. By the time this airs, it will have come out on Righteous Babe Records. Uh, where can people find you, stream the record, check you out, follow you along with you, sign up for your classes? Ooh, thank you. Um, yes, well, all of my stuff, uh, the music is going to be available on RighteousBabe.com. And I am on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Jocelyn McKenzie spelled M-C-K-N-Z, so Jocelyn M-C-K-N-Z. Uh, and I'm also on Patreon, and Patreon is where I'm exploring some more, uh, mm. you know, in-depth looks of at the work and, you know, sharing some card readings and meditations and kind of crossing over between music and making and mediumship and all the different things I do. Patreon is a great place to find that, and that's Patreon um, slash Jocelyn McKenzie. One last thing uh, you said is life is a song that must be played by all for all. For those of us who cannot carry a tune or play a musical instrument, how do we live this sentence to its fullest? I would say to trust, to just Mm. trust. You know, I think it was uh, Maya Angelou said something like a bird I should really memorize this quote, but it's like a bird doesn't sing because it has a message. A bird sings because it has a song, you know, and when I can trust that I am a human being just trying to figure out what it's like to live in this world and music can actually help guide me to that. 
um, it helps me connect with other people and to connect with myself, you know, and anybody else's idea of what talent or success is, is really none of my business. So I get to stay out of that and just stay with, stay where the joy is. And music is where the joy is for me. Incredible. I want to thank the team from Rosella who joined us earlier in the show. Uh, thanks for listening this week. We will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. What are you going to take us out with? I'm going to play uh, Beam of Light from Push, uh, which was inspired by going to a show from my friend Jason Anderson. Music inspires music inspires music. Thank you. Let's hope it's not eight years again before we connect. Thank you for being <laughs> on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. With a little heater for background, too. Oh, I'm going to tune here. Oh, tuning patter. We had this joke eight years ago. <laughs> I know, right? And meanwhile, I didn't even play any instruments eight years ago. Oh, my. Oh. What did I play? Like a shaker, probably? Something like that. I Very barely... charming, though. No one even noticed. <laughs> I barely play instruments now, so we're doing our best here. Okay, here we go. This is Beam of Light. As I turned to leave, you looked me right in the eye And said, hey, let's keep talking about art and life We walked to the train, I took your hand and I said Let's listen to the sounds of the city again And I don't understand the pain of being awake, awake, awake But I know Somehow we will all be together as a beam of light one day. You broke three strings, you were hard on yourself, but it really didn't matter to anyone else. You shared truth, love, and hurt, you shared weird, let and dirt, and it all made the pattern of my favorite quilt and I don't understand the joy of being awake, awake, awake. but I know that somehow we will all be together as a beam of light one day oh my hands are shaking but my belly King of misfits and heartsick vagabonds, and the Latter-day scholars who all get along. Of course we'll remember, and of course it will fade. A story as sacred as it is profane. As we all bear our chest to the thick orange sky, we will never be. Just for a moment, we all shared a body as a beam of light that day. It is pain, it is joy, it is you that keeps me awake, awake, awake. You are the love that will hold us together as a beam of light one day.
Oh, I know that somehow we will all be together as a team of life one day. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.